Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Well, good morning, church. Uh, I miss you all uh, seeing you in person, but I'm excited to open up God's word for us once again today. Uh, We've decided that the next few weeks leading up to Easter that we are going to finish out the sermon series that we were walking through before we were disrupted uh, through the Psalm of Ascents that we've uh, subtitled The Road of Discipleship. And part of the reason why we want to continue that series is the context that these psalms were written in and the context that we find ourselves in right now, uh, we think overlap in some pretty meaningful ways. If you remember, these psalm of ascents were sung by the Israelites who were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the three annual feasts in the religious Jewish calendar. And as they were ascending upward towards Jerusalem, uh, these songs, Psalms 120 through 134, were meant to sustain these sojourners and pilgrims on their journey toward their home. And if we're feeling anything right now in this season, it should be a deep sense that we are living in a world that is not yet our true home. We feel firsthand right now that things are not the way they are supposed to be here. The circumstances that we find ourselves in today, with many of our earthly comforts and our safety nets gone, it ought to heighten our identity as God's people of being sojourners and exiles as we long for the day when God will set right all that has gone wrong. So as we find ourselves on this journey towards our true home, I'm sure there are some big questions that are front and center for you right now. I'm sure you're asking questions like, what hope is there for us in the midst of these circumstances? What life ought we to live as Christians in response to this virus? And what will sustain us in the midst of the uncertainty that lies ahead? Well, I believe that Psalm 130 answers those questions for us in a powerful way, which is where we're going to turn our attention now. If you didn't get a chance to read Psalm 130 before starting the video, I encourage you to pause it and read it now. But Psalm 130 begins with a crying out from the depths of the sea for mercy and forgiveness. And it ends with a settled, confident reminder of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if there's anything we need a reminder of right now, it is that simple gospel message that is powerful enough to save and sustain us for this season. So here's what I think we're going to see in Psalm 130 as we walk through this text. The Lord graciously forgives guilty sinners and invites us to wait on him in faith. The Lord graciously forgives guilty sinners and invites us to wait on him in faith. And as we begin to walk through this, let's talk first about what it means to walk in forgiveness. Look at the first two verses with me of Psalm 130. The psalmist says in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. As I mentioned, the psalmist is crying out from the depths. The, The phrase from the depths in the Hebrew is often talking about the depths of the sea, the place of danger and chaos in the Old Testament. And the opening here is not a pretty picture. 
the psalmist is in distress. And the reason why is, is clear in verse 2. He's crying out for mercy. He's almost describing this feeling of sinking down to the bottom of the sea, almost as if he's drowning. But the reason why he's drowning is because he feels overwhelmed by guilt and condemnation. Now, the idea of guilt has almost become non-existent in our culture today. You might notice that we talk a lot about shame and sin that has been done to us, but not a lot about guilt. Let me affirm both shame and guilt are very real things, and they both are connected in some meaningful ways, and the gospel powerfully answers them both. But the shift in our increasingly secular world has resulted in the downplaying of objective truth. The idea that there are absolute moral rights and absolute moral wrongs that exist whether you like them or not. And instead, where we've shifted as a culture is we've personalized morality. We've promoted the idea of living out your truth instead of the truth. And we should not get it twisted, brothers and sisters. If there is indeed a God, then there is also indeed the truth that we are accountable to. And so all of a sudden, our categories for guilt have been lost or ignored. This is also an issue in the church, by the way. This is not just an issue in the broader culture we find ourselves in. In 2018, Ligonier conducted a survey that they entitled The State of Theology in the Evangelical Church. And as a Bible teacher at heart, it was a very sad survey, to be honest with you. Uh, 52% of evangelicals agreed with this statement, for example. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 52% of evangelicals said everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Well, in contrast to that, we have Psalm 130. The psalmist here is wrestling with his own guilt and fallenness. He knows that deep down, he is not good by nature, but he is stuck in his sin. And listen, you can act like it's not there. You can convince yourself that everything is fine and it's not a big deal. You can try and rationalize it away. You can numb yourself to this reality, but listen, your sin will eventually sink you. It will find you out and you will end up in the depths like Psalm 130 opens from. And verse 3 only amplifies this reality. Look at verse 3. The psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? He's asking a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no one could stand before a holy and righteous God. And here's the thing we must recognize. The Lord does indeed mark iniquities. He does number our transgressions. He's not turning a blind eye to the things that happen in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. If I could illustrate this for a moment, my wife and I have been recently watching the show The Good Place. Not sure if you've ever seen it, but it's a show that theorizes what happens in the afterlife after we die. And the way that they calculate how you end up in either the good place or the bad place is through this mathematical equation. The equation gives positive point values to your good deeds, your good thoughts and intentions. And on the flip side, it gives negative point values to the bad things in those same categories. And it turns out as the show unfolds, this is a bit of a spoiler here, I'm sorry, but no human being has actually made it into the good place in like 500 years based on their point system of good deeds versus bad deeds. And the characters in the show, they are outraged by this reality. How could that be the case? But I would contend to you that this is, even though a fictional story, 
far closer to the biblical idea than the sentiments that that survey data showed. Just consider for a moment Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. You're probably familiar with the first half of this, but maybe not the second half. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, listen to this, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, the Lord sees and knows it all. Not just our deeds, not just the things that we do when no one's looking, but even the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And Hebrews says, we must give an account and none of us can stand righteous and blameless before him. So that begs the question, what do we do with that? What do we do when we feel like we are sinking, we are drowning in sin and guilt and condemnation? Well, here is the good news for us this morning. It comes powerfully in verse 4. The psalmist then proclaims, But with you, God, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What a glorious truth that we constantly need to be reminded of. You see, with us there is great sin, but with you, O Lord, there is great forgiveness. And this is who God is. He is in his very character and nature, merciful and forgiving. And what's so incredible about the words of this song is that they're written before the coming of Christ. You see, what the people of Israel knew then of God's forgiveness was the sacrificial system and the fact that God had created a way for guilty sinners to be made clean before him, but those sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again to atone for a guilt. But how much more powerful is it for us to know where that forgiveness ultimately comes from? You see, the idea of there being forgiveness with and from God ultimately leads us to the cross of Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus dies in the place of a guilty humanity. Your sins and my sins, though they are many, they can be forgiven and washed clean by the sacrificial death of Christ. The good news of the gospel is this, and please don't miss this. Although the Lord does mark sins, our record can be wiped clean. For those who are in Christ Jesus, God is no longer counting our trespasses against us because those sins have been credited to Jesus's accounts. This is the great mystery and the glorious exchange of the gospel. Jesus takes our sin upon himself, and then we in turn get his righteousness and his perfect record. And all of this is sheer and utter grace for us, though we are undeserving. And listen, this is available to you right now, in this moment. And if it feels almost too good to be true, then I would contend you are just starting to grasp how powerful this message is. That's why the psalmist says that with you there is great forgiveness so that you might be feared, you might be worshiped in reverent awe and respect, and we're just so grateful for all that you've done that we fear you. So let me urge you, I don't know where you're at in this moment or what you might be going through, But this psalm is an invitation to cry out to God when we feel like we are sinking to the depths of the bottom of the sea because of our sin. 
Psalm 130 beautifully reminds us that we cannot sink too low where the Lord can't hear us. So, have you cried out from the depths? Have you laid bare your soul to the one who knows and sees it all, yet has offered you forgiveness through Christ? Listen, don't delay. Whether it's for the first time or you've gone so many times you can't even remember, run to the throne of grace where there is forgiveness for the guilty. Now, after this reminder of God's forgiveness, there's a transition that takes place in verse 5. And the transition surprises me a bit. In light of this forgiveness, what does God call us to do? Well, look at verse 5. The psalmist then says, Therefore, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Before the psalmist does anything else, he reminds us that much of the Christian life simply involves waiting. In fact, the second half of this psalm is all about what it means to be waiting in faith. And we are in a season of waiting right now, aren't we? But if we're honest with one another, none of us really like waiting, nor are we any good at it at all. We live in an instantaneous society where typically the longest we have to wait for anything is free two-day shipping with Amazon Prime. But there's no doubt in the days ahead that this waiting, it's going to continue. We're waiting to see how far and wide this virus will spread. We're waiting to hear what's going to happen with our jobs, what's going to happen with schools. Maybe we're just waiting to get out of the house and get some fresh air. Maybe we're waiting with an uncertainty about what the future is going to hold, whether we like it or not. We are being forced to wait right now. But here's the problem. We usually equate waiting with inactivity, with a passive sitting back, almost as if we're waiting to check out at the grocery store and we're in a long line. It's almost like we're sitting in a doctor's office waiting room, praying, God, please call my name soon. But that's not the kind of waiting that the Christian life prescribes. Instead, this waiting involves two things in this psalm. First of all, we wait by watching. We wait by watching. You see, the psalmist says that we ought to wait like watchmen for the morning. Now, in the ancient world, watchmen had a critical job. They were tasked with patrolling the top of the city walls as the sun set, entrusted to keep guard all night long, looking out for intruders or enemies or any problems that might come up. And you can imagine the intensity of this job. It's pitch black outside. You never know what's out there, and it's your job to alert the people if something is wrong. Now, let's not miss this. Watchmen had to wait. No matter how much they might want that night to end, nothing in their own efforts would cause the sun to rise any faster. But let's appreciate that this is not an inactive, passive, let me sit back in a waiting room kind of waiting. No, watchmen, they're on guard. They are vigilant. They're sensitive to anything and everything that is happening around them. And brothers and sisters, this is our call on the road of discipleship as well. We are called to wait for the Lord by eagerly watching for him to move. We can't manipulate him. We can't speed up his time frame. But what we can do is have our senses tuned in to what God might be up to. Listen, practically, this means we wait on the Lord by being watchful in his word and in prayer. The word that the psalmist says he puts his hope in reminds us that though it seems dark, 
Though the night might seem awful long right now, the sun will rise. Morning is surely coming. And prayer alongside that, it keeps us spiritually awake. It heightens our senses and keeps us in tune with God's activity. You see, the Christian life is a life of waiting by watching. But secondly, we also wait by hoping. Look at verse 7 and 8. The psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, the idea of hoping that the psalmist describes here, it's not merely wishful thinking or a hoping for the best. Instead, for the Christian, hope is rooted and grounded in the sure character, nature, and actions of God. He mentions two things that we can count on in this regard. First, he grounds his hope in the Lord's steadfast love. Steadfast love is a loaded word in the Hebrew. It's God's hesed love for us. And this single word is meant to capture the Lord's covenantal commitment to his people. That no matter what, no matter what might be going on in our world and in our lives, God has promised he is not going anywhere. I've always loved how the Jesus Storybook Bible, I think it best summarizes this steadfast love of the Lord. It's described there as his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And brothers and sisters, we hope in that kind of love, that God has given us his steadfast love as his covenant people. But it's not just that that we can root our hope in. We can also plant our hope firmly in the fact that with the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. And there's a promise that he will redeem his people from all their sins. The Lord spares no punches. He holds nothing back in pouring out his gracious redemption upon a guilty people. His redemption goes further than we could ever imagine or dream. He redeems our past by wiping clean the record of debt that stood against us. He makes new our present. He gives us the spirit from one one degree of glory to the next. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. But it's not just our past. It's not just our present. He will hold us secure for the future. Because his grip is tight on us, we wait by hoping. As we close, I think Eugene Peterson summarizes this powerfully for us. Listen to what he says. He says, the Christian's waiting and watching is hoping. It's based on the conviction that God is actively involved in his creation and vigorously at work in redemption. But hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned task, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusion. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It's the opposite of a desperate and panicky manipulation of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. Listen to how he says this. Hoping means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to wait in faith. 
we can have a confident, alert expectation as our souls wait for the Lord to bring about all that he has promised in Jesus Christ. But in the midst of all we're facing right now, we need to remember that with the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. And this is not just a reminder for us. This is the hope for all the world as we navigate these circumstances and whatever might come in the future. Listen, in the moments it gets hard, let's proclaim to ourselves, let's proclaim to one another in the church, and let's proclaim to the whole world the truth of this psalm. But with you there is forgiveness, and you, O Lord, will redeem us from all our iniquities. That's good news for our right now, and that's good news for whatever the future would hold. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your forgiveness towards us. Lord, thank you that though we are unworthy, you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life that we could not live, to die a sacrificial death in our place, and then to be raised three days later to loosen their stranglehold on a guilty people like us. Lord, thank you for the love of Christ in that way. We ask now that you would strengthen and empower us to simply wait and to wait well. As the whole world is waiting right now, may your people, may the church be a witness to what it means to wait on the Lord, to settle our souls before you, and to have an alert, confident expectation that you will do what you've said you will do, that you will be faithful to fulfill your promises in the future just as you always have in the past. And we are so grateful for the hope that gives our lives right now. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.